This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I'm producer at Westwards. Ordinarily, I would be interviewing our guest for the masterclass and our guest today is Isabel Carmody, fantasy writer. But I won't be interviewing Isabel today because she provided this talk as part of a spoken word event that we run at Westwards. It's called uh, Hemingway's Polydactyl Kitten Club and Speakeasy. It's on the first Monday of each month. It's held virtually at the moment. Uh, You can find details on the website if you'd like to join us. But uh, Isabel gave us uh, her insights during a talk at the September Kitten Club. Now Isabella, as I say, is a highly respected, highly accomplished writer of fantasy predominantly. She's written such books as the Over Newton Chronicles and The Gathering, The Ashling. Uh, also she uh, wrote a, a wonderful little book that I really enjoyed called uh, Little Fur, which is very, it's almost fable-like fantasy, which she illustrated, I believe. She's won the Aurealis Awards. She's probably won several Aurealis Awards. She's also won the Children's Book Council Book of the Year twice. She is currently living in Brisbane, where she's just completed her doctorate, her PhD, at the University of Queensland. And today she's going to be talking about how fantasy writers, or at least this fantasy writer, uses fantasy as a way not just to escape, which is often used as a escapism is often used as a pejorative but really as a way to process the things that occur in our real lives. So here's Isabel Carmody. Okay well um, since we sort of since you introduced me with the um the uh the, the fantasy angle I suppose I will go sort of I will begin by talking a little bit about the PhD because why does a writer buy a bother to um undertake a PhD. I mean, I was doing well enough as a writer. I'm not doing any better. I won't do any better because of having done my PhD. My mum said, so what now? And it's like, what are you going to do when you grow up? And, you know, I, I, I don't see anything much changing about my life. I had my reasons for doing it. Um, and they were not to, to get tenure as a university professor or really even to work in universities. To begin with, what I was looking for was some kind of gravitas as as a human being so that when I was on a panel with people who were not fantasy writers, I, I would be able to slug back in their language and I would be able to say what I wanted to say about what I do in a language that they would understand or that they would, you know, heavy enough and, and grounded enough in their kind of language. So I wanted that. Um, because I, you know, you write fantasy and someone said if you write romance, it's it's further down the track. Children's literature, you know, okay, literary children's fiction, that's fine, but you're still, you know, you're you're not considered to be doing the real thing, which is writing literary adult novels. So I, I guess I wanted to defend what I was doing. Um, and I, you know, it's a it's a genre I love, but I don't set out to write genre writing ever. I never have. I set out to write something, and it's always somehow been that the it's it's as if the idea ha- 
ha looks for a vessel. And for me, that vessel has been very often the fa fantasy and the fantastic. And, you know, I wanted to look at why, why I did that. I wanted to think about, and I've done it with pieces of writing. I wanted to think about why, you know, when I wrote Dark Fall and Dark Song, I was looking at, you know, if a world can be rescued and it's a fantasy world and it can be rescued by, you know, releasing a unicorn, what about the real world? What's the use of that to the real world? It's just, it doesn't mean anything in the real world. It's symbolic, but what does it symbolise actually? What's What can save the real world? What can help the real world in the ways that those things help in fiction? So I sort of, I wanted to look in that. So when I wrote those novels, I was really looking at, why do we, why Why have a dragon? Why have a, you know, unicorn? Why not just write about heroism in reality? There's plenty of it around. There must be a reason. Why do we go to those things? And so when I wrote Dark Fall and Dark Song, I was making my own creative examination of those ideas. And looking back now, I can see I was doing it a number of times in a number of ways when I wrote Greylands, but I, I was always looking at why, why am I doing this? So to, to, to do a PhD, that was one of the reasons. There were also sort of sound financial reasons for it too. I'd been living for 10 years in Prague. Um, I wanted to come back to Australia. I wanted my daughter to have her last three years of school in English. I wanted her to feel that, you know, the groundedness you feel when you're speaking your own language instead of always being slightly on the on the back foot. I wanted her to feel sort of really strong in her own language when she was finishing school. And I had no money. The bottom had fallen a bit out of literature. And I thought at first it was just I got a terrible royalty. I thought it was a glitch. And then there was another glitch another six months later. And I thought, oh, my God, I guess this could be real. Maybe it really has changed and maybe I, I can't make a living out of writing, which I'd done for most of, I mean, I was the breadwinner of my family. And for most of my life, I had no money problems. So I, I realised things had changed and I wanted, but I still wanted to go home. So I thought, so I was talking to, I had spoken on tour to another writer and uh, that was Kim Wilkins. And she said, Isabel, why don't you, this was ages back, years back. She said, why don't you think about a creative PhD? And I said, I can't do a PhD. I've only done an undergraduate. You know, I didn't, I didn't do any more degrees. I didn't do an honours year. I did. And she said, we can just skip over those because of your body of work. And that seemed kind of, I thought, wow, that's cool, but I don't want to do that. So I just put it out of my mind. But when I was coming back to Australia and thinking where I wanted to live, I thought, what if I could do it? So I wrote to her and thought, well, what if I could get a scholarship? And if I could study, I'd love that. And then I'd be able to live. So I wrote to her and she said, oh, my God, you know, do it at the University of Queensland because I can supervise you. But you have to apply and, you know, post it's hard to get the grant, the scholarship. So I went through all the hoops and uh, I got accepted. Um, and what I got accepted with was wanting to pursue that same question. I wanted to ask something about how is it, I, I don't want to talk about fantasy worlds. I actually want to talk about reality. I always and only want to talk about reality. <clears throat> so if that's the case, how... You know, I, I want to talk about why and how. And I wanted to look at the exact mechanisms I used. And I won Book of the Year twice with, with things that were fantastical. So if they, and I believe they spoke to and about the real world. So I sort of wanted to step back from, uh, from that and think about what literally is the mechanism I used when I write? What are the most powerful mechanisms? Which one will I choose? 
And I'd never really thought very much about what I was doing. I guess you, you have this mystical approach to your writing. You don't want to think too much about the mechanisms because what if it all goes away once you start thinking about it? So there was all that sort of weird superstitious stuff, but I decided not to care about that. And so I I thought I would, uh, so I chose an aspect of my own creative toolbox to write about. And what that technique was, was when I looked at my writing, I thought, what, what do I do when I want to write most profoundly about reality? When I want to answer the deepest questions in every book, what is it that I, what's my go-to? Why do I always end up writing almost always something fantastical? And I picked this technique I use and I, I had to figure out what it was first. And it's something to do with, it's, a, it's an oscillation between realism and the fantastic. So realism is really important when you write fantasy. You use realism. And when you say a book is a fantasy novel, you're talking about that as a genre. I wanted to use it as a writer uses these terms, and that is as a tool. And so for me, I don't use fantasy as a, as a receptacle into which to fit myself. I use it as a tool and I don't just use one. If you look at literature, you can see that people often use both realism and the fantastic when they write. I mean, look at Cloud Street. He's writing realism. But you look at Cloud Street, there's an aspect of Cloud Street where he, um, one of the characters, I mean, I'm sure you've all read it and I'm just going to be a spoiler if you haven't. Um, his character is split apart when they drown into a person that's real and still living with some kind of diminished mental state. But the real, the other part of them, the bit of them that's gone, that was lost, is still floating in the story. I mean, that's fantasy. That's pure fantastic. And so, and if you look at, you know, Midnight's Children, you look at all sorts of writing, not just magical realism, not just hard fantasy, but all sorts of novels use flutterings of fantasy. And many times I wanted to talk about death and grieving. And you know how when we write novels, I mean, those of you who write will know this anyway, but when you write novels, you have you have your own creative thesis you're pursuing. And so underneath everything that you're writing, there are various questions you're asking. So my question for the novel that I was writing as part of my PhD, my question was, isn't isn't our grieving over death, isn't that really actually grieving for ourselves most, you know, in a very profound way? Because when we die, that's the end of cognition. We can never process our own death except in advance and, you know, by means of other people dying. That's how we process death and it's the only way we can process it and I believe we must process it in some way and we can't just do it once. That's why grieving is, is these waves of grief that come because it's a mechanism for processing our own mortality. So what I wanted to write in the novel, I wanted to examine the process of grieving and so the novel is this gigantic mammoth thing called the theatre of death. Um, Kim said I wrote four PhDs in one because I wrote an overlength uh, thesis and I wrote an overlength novel. And I applied and I basically said, What do you expect? You took me on as a creative writer. Take a look at the books that I've written. And that's what I do sometimes. And I don't know how long a thing will be because I have to be allowed to pursue that question to its end. A good editor will be able to hack it to pieces afterwards, maybe. And, uh, but right now, this is what I'm doing. So that was what I, so I wanted to look at then how I as a, as a writer 
would then deal with that question creatively. So my, my, my idea was to write a novel where I had dozens of characters, everything, every part. I did everything I ever wanted to do that a publisher would be horrified by. I wrote it through the eyes of dozens of characters. I put myself in it as myself, as an ethnographer, wandering around interviewing my own characters in the middle of a very dramatic story in which one, it's partly murder mystery, partly saga, and there's, and there's a woman who's comatose the whole time who's dreaming. It's like about a dozen stories all wound together. It's mad. And and, uh, and, and the ch- many times when I was writing it, I just thought, this is crazy. I'm, <laughs> how will I ever get to the end? Well, I knew what the end was. I knew everything about the novel. I just didn't know. It was just so huge to get there through all these different... And having myself, I had such fun wandering around in my own novel. At some point, I just got sick of the story and I wandered off and started talking to someone. And the story's gone in one direction and I've gone in the other. I just really, really loved every bit of it. And at the same time, I was, I was, so I was writing about writing about this, um, making this exploration, looking at my characters, judging them, um, and I was there for them to interact with too. So every now and again, they would judge me, or they would, especially the kids, would have conversations with me that was slightly eerie. So I had this notion that, you know, maybe kids could see through me more realist because kids see through a lot. So I decided that was how I was going to work it, and. Uh, um, and outside of this, my research consisted of trying to watch myself do this. So I had notebooks and all the time that I was writing, all the time that I was researching, because I researched the family set up a, a, a funeral parlour. And so I had to research all the ways, you know, what do you do with a body? What are all the possible things you can do with a body? Is it legal? How, what's the legality of it? How would they do it? And I, I went to dozens of parties and I was the person sitting in the corner saying to someone, so how did your Aunt Maud die? Now, all I was interested in was hearing people's stories about death and everybody has them. Weird wills people left, weird requirements, weird companies set up to do weird things. Like there's someone sent me, and I keep getting information because even though I've finished my PhD, information flows towards you that you've set up. And I, I think for years from now, weird death stuff is going to be coming to me. And one of the things was um, that came to me was uh, recently there's a guy you can pay after you die and he just pops up at your graveside when everybody's mourning and, and reveals things about you that you wanted revealed. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so and there are many things like how people can be buried. So I did a lot of research and while I was researching, I was constantly trying to be an ethnographer and observe myself. And I had, you know, I had ethnographic notes. So I had, you know, I had moments in which I made notes. I always made note whenever I sat down to write, before I wrote, I would write for five minutes talking about what I was, you know, what was in my mind, what I had just been doing, what I had for breakfast, who had told me what, what I'd noticed in the sky. And then afterwards I'd write about you know, where, what I did that day. Did I go where I thought I was going to do? Did I go off in some, did someone call? Did I get angry? Did I get stuck? And I kept those notes and dated them. And when I was researching, 
I had post-it notes. And as I was researching, any time any thought about the book came into my mind, especially about fantasy and realism, anything that came into my mind, I would just stop, write it down in the shortest form possible and stick it on the page of the book that I was writing. And at the end of that day, I would put all those pieces of post-it notes in an envelope and date them. So I did a lot. And then later on, I, 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 I called that data. I also wrote weekly where I pro that's what you do as an ethnographer. You take all of your notes that you're where you're, you know, examining whatever you're examining. You you pro you try to process them to the next level. You try to notice things. You notice that on this what I one of the things I noticed was, and these these were such interesting things. I noticed that if I'd had a conversation about writing with another writer, I tended to be much more able to process, to, to, to say clearly what I wanted to say. It was as if I'd got into that mind state. Um, and I noticed, and I also had this weird thing where I had to write about writing when not writing. Because as writers, the, the, the time in which you sit down to actually write is only a very small portion of the process of creation. You're thinking about it when you're, you know, you're having an argument with your wife, you're laying in bed at night and you can't sleep. You go to the loo, you go walking down the street, you're waiting in a supermarket queue. Things come to you that are connected to your writing. So I had post-it notes with me all the time and they're everywhere. I keep finding them in weird places that I forgot stuck to the back of my arm because I've got them inside a coat or something. My whole life is full of these weird post-it notes, only some of which are I was able to cull, but in trying to just every time I notice stuff to write it down. And what I found was that some of the most fruitful thinking about writing happened when I was doing the dishes or, you know, I noticed that it, then I would have a notepad beside and I'd be stirring the pot and I'd think about something and I'd stir a bit more. So those really kind of mindless, not that cooking is mindless, but those moments of just doing that kneading of dough or whatever it was that you're doing, those were the moments. Um, I tried doing it with audio, but it was incredibly lengthy and I was very blabby, as you know, as you can tell, and I just didn't want to transcribe my notes. So I thought, nah, that's a bad idea because that's going to be weeks and years of blabbing that I'm going to have to listen to. So the post-it notes worked really well. But I have to say I tend, until this uh, PhD, I almost wrote nothing down. And I, there's a reason for doing that. Like every, every writer I know keeps a notebook. So one of the things I, one of the chapters in my PhD is studying the process of notebooking. And, uh, and I was looking at, uh, at ethnographic note taking as an anthropologist or an ethnographer and, uh, and the kind of notebooking that creative writers do. So I looked at three people who notebooked and, you know, various different kinds of writers, and I really examined their process of notebooking. And my process was, was a, um, it was about gathering data. It wasn't a creative note-taking exercise. It was very interesting because when I was first looking at notebooking, I, I had, I've got friends who are writers, of course, and I asked quite a lot of them, can I look at your notebook? And in every single case, they said, no way. I mean, in every case. And I realised when I tried to keep notes, that personal stuff gets in there. Of course it does. And so, you know, they're extremely personal. And although my notebook wasn't that much so, it still processes a lot of personal stuff. So so I was looking at, uh, at notebooking, and that's one of the chapters of the, you know, you have to write your exegetical essay around and about your piece of writing. Again, it, it is a strategy for me not to write things down because I, I think a lot of creative energy as a writer is wasted in, I call it, I would say it's wasted in writing 
really, really complex notes. And I mean, I don't mean for experienced writers. Of course, people have their own methods once they're experienced. But, you know, um, emerging writers, beginning writers often write really, really long notes, especially in fantasy or science fiction. They'll world build it all into notes. And it's so they've put so much of themselves into it. They've got nothing left for the piece of creative writing. It's boring to them because they've sort of solved the thing that's the question that's driving the piece of writing. They've already solved it. And so for me, um, I just believe I'll remember it. I mean, we do remember an incredible amount of stuff. We can't access it. And I think if you've got an idea that's strong enough, it will just drag all that stuff out of you. And for me, that process of writing is going over and over and over the piece of writing and it does come up you know lots of stuff from years and years ago come up and if it doesn't last well it probably wasn't good enough anyway so it wasn't strong enough it didn't stick hard enough and so something else will take its place something more relevant stickier and that's you know that's how I always felt so I was a little bit nervous too of of this note-taking exercise because I thought well what if I completely screw it up you know what if I and then I thought, well, this, this is what a PhD is for. It's about trying something new and dangerous and difficult and maybe failing, you know, maybe it won't work. And all the way through writing the notes and again in the thesis when I've written the essay, I said it, I was very conscious and the me in the novel um, wandering around there says, well, this is dangerous, you know, I could really mess this up. And she's constantly trying to, you know, make herself self efface it like she Every now and again, you see a scene one of the other characters is talking about, and then she comes in and she says, well, I was there, but I, I refuse to let them talk about me. I just, I, I, I've got this gift of being able to, you know, just put myself in the background so they sort of forget about me because I actually did it. I wrote the thing. And so she, so I, I'm, I'm looking at myself and then writing about myself being in the novel because you become a character. You know, I become this weird old crone, which, you know, that's a bit of me too. <laughs> I liked what I became in the novel, this strange old crone. <laughs> why I chose death and grieving was because, you know, when I was 14, and that's why, James, I, I kind of like made a point of saying it was 14 when I started because my dad was killed in a car accident when I was 14. And for me, that kind of started the whole thing. The novel, you know, uh, the Over Newton Chronicles is set after a nuclear holocaust, most of the world's, you know, radioactive black wastelands. It's all fantasy. It's all science fiction. But uh, for me, I mean, I was writing about my world and my life. You know, my life felt like a nuclear holocaust had, had, had happened. I was a misfit. I was lonely. I was getting bashed up at school. I was scared to death of the teachers. I, I, we lived in a really tough neighbourhood. My mother went to work and left me alone at night. So all these, you know, and it was a world in which, you know, we played these horrible games, you know, the horror games, but, it, it, and it was fantasy, but it was a world, we lived in a world in which one day dad went out and died. So it was a world in which really awful stuff could happen and we really believed it because it had happened to us. And it was a world where justice, you know, there was no justice because a drunk driver killed my dad and nothing happened to him. You know, he, he just went off to Queensland, actually, after the trial. My mum told me after the inquest, he said, thank God now I can go to Queensland. And that was what he said at the end of the inquest where he killed my dad, a man whose wife was in hospital having a baby and crippled another guy and nothing happened to him. And I didn't understand that. And funnily enough, I've got a, a friend who's a solicitor and uh, while I was writing um, the novel, 
I was taught, you know, it's, it's because I was processing, I, I talk about it in the in the PhD, I talk about it in the first chapter as one of the driving um, aspects of all of my writing is, you know, my dad, my dad was in an accident 10 years before he was killed. He was in a work accident and the work vehicle ran over his Repco truck and crushed him. And he, he was terribly scarred on the forehead and he had one eye that was, he was blind in one eye, but he had a kind of like, it, it, it wasn't missing, it didn't look weird, it was just like a cloud was across the middle of his eye. I always thought it was a cloud in his eye somehow. It was very poetic that he had, my dad had a cloud in his eye. And uh, in this accident, he'd become, as you can imagine, he was trapped in the car and he was phobic about cars. So a man with eight kids rode a motorbike. We never got in a car. He just didn't get in cars. He, it freaked him out even to get into um, a bus. And uh, on the night he died, it was the first time in those 10 years that he'd got into a car. And why did he do it? Why did he get in the car? I will never know why he did. And that's another of those questions, parents when they die or anyone when they die, we're left with questions connected to their life that we can never have answered. So death is this kind of veil of mystery that goes over and you deal with what's lost, life and all the stories of that person and all the connections to you are just severed. All the possibilities of asking those questions are gone. So that's part of what's in the novel, why I was writing the novel. And the novel throughout the entire, you know, 370,000 page uh, words, um, it's raining the entire time of the novel. And, uh, you know, Kim, when she read the novel for the first time, she wrote to me, you know, she dreamed about rain afterwards. And um, Leonie is now reading it. And she told me the other day, guess what I'm reading it with? And I said, I don't know. And she said, I'm, I'm listening to a rain tape while she, she's reading it, which is so apt, so strange. And so, so I had decided that it was going to be raining for the entire novel. And, uh, and at some point, Kim said, this is too big. You can't put in a, a novel this big. And I said, wait a sec, I've got this, you know, exemption. I can write this overlength thing. And Kim said, have you ever heard the term examinable thesis? And I hadn't. <laughs> and I thought, oh, shit. So it was, it was three acts. And Kim said, what about just for the purposes of the PhD, rearranging it into two acts and submitting one act? So I did. It took me months to find the exact place. And what happened was I'd, I'd, she said, just finish it anywhere. And I said, no, it has to have, it has to feel emotionally satisfying for the examiner. It has to, I can't do this unless I reach the end. So I was months overdue. I mean, like I was already years overdue, but I was months overdue. You, you, there's a point beyond which they won't give you any more extensions and I just thought well what are they going to do I wonder what they'll do because you know I won't do anything I'll just finish the novel when I finish it so I just kept going and no one came after me and COVID happened and I thought well no one's going to come for me now so I kept looking for this place where I could write the novel and when I was writing the character of me at some point my character was thinking about you know, started to think about the fact of my father's death because in an ethnography, you have to you have to establish positionality. So I thought I wanted my character, the me in this novel, to actually think about why I'd written the novel. So she starts, I start to think about my father's death for the first time in some kind of visceral way. And uh, at some point, I, I said, I start to talk about the fact that, you know, why did my father get into the, why on that night? It was a, and, and I, I know kind of why. I know that it was a, a stormy night. He didn't take his bike that day. 
And then I suddenly thought, oh, my God, it was raining. It was raining. That's why he didn't ride his motorbike. That's why he was going to catch a bus. That's why he got into the car when the offer of a lift came. And that's why he died. And I typed, without thinking off the end of my fingers, I typed, maybe all these years, all these books, all I've been trying to do is stop the rain from falling. You know, you've talked about dealing with grief and so forth in your earlier books, but they were fantasy books. Do you think there was some kind of arm's length, you know, subconsciously, were you trying to keep an arm's length from reality and dealing with those things through a, a fantasy lens or was well, there something else? It's, see, it's this, it's this notion of escape, which is, you know, it's seen as, a, it's treated in a derogatory way, the idea of escape, or it's treated as kids should be allowed to escape. But in fact, we all do it all the time. We escape into fantasy. We who, who have somebody die in our adult lives fantasise that they will come back again. You know, we spend our lives, if we're going to meet somebody or we want to meet somebody, we fantasise about it. So we use, we will call it visualisation but it's still fantasy. So we use this all the time as a coping mechanism, as a way of stepping back from reality to think. And for me, that escape was like, I mean, for kids, I always talk about Harry Potter's room of requirement because when that appeared in that film, I thought, my God, that's the perfect metaphor for what writing is for me, for, for me as a kid. It was a place to go where I could think. And for me, you know, I was talking to my old sociology professor who, who was one of the people who, who, who wrote me a reference for doing a PhD in the first place, and I wanted to thank him, and I had to track him down. And uh, he, I said to him, so what are you doing now? And he said, well, I'm dying, I'm old. And I said, Jesus Christ, that's a great way to start a conversation. I said, can you not, not talk about dying? And he said, he said, well, I am. And I said, yeah, well, we all are. You know, what are you doing? Are you writing anything? And he said, yeah, I'm writing, but, you know, I don't care about publication. I write because I need to process the world. And I thought, that's what I do. That's what writing is for me first. It's a processing of the world. Back to that 14-year-old girl, that was what she was doing. She wasn't wanting to be published. She didn't fantasise about being a writer. She didn't dream about being a writer. She'd never met one in her life. She couldn't imagine she lived in the same universe as Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. They were shining beings on another planet. You know, the idea that I could actually write to one of those shining beings, be one from that kind of background, no, it never occurred to me at all. For me, that escaping was just simply getting away from this ferocious life that I was living as a kid to be able to think about reality and the world, you know, in a, in a, in a bigger way and what my place in it was to think about philosophical ideas. So, yeah, I think fantasy can do that and very often does do that. You know, it's it's considered to be escapism, but what really are people escaping into? Aren't people who read escaping sometimes into a world where the ideals that we look around desperately to see around us, we see them there. They exist somewhere fictionally for two minutes. Therefore, they, you know, in, in, I sometimes think if you if you read a book about courage and you, it stirs up all sorts of thoughts in your mind, maybe for that minute you could be brave. You know, maybe it does exist while we can imagine it. And so, yeah, for me, that escaping, uh, I don't know, escaping from just the cold face of life to something that means, you know, where I can think, to be able to think. 